All rise. Court is now in session. A verdict in this case has already been decided, but I'd like to examine this case together. And then I would like you to ask yourself, what if? What if this person really is innocent? What if the jury got it wrong? Could this crime have occurred as the state said it did? I suppose it's possible, but isn't it also possible that this is one of the many wrongful convictions throughout the United States? Prepare yourself to be amazed, disappointed, and perhaps outraged at what you're about to hear. I'm Deborah Fulton, Case Review Manager for Wrongful Convictions News, and I would like to present to you some of the factors used to obtain a guilty verdict, and then you can decide if you would vote to convict or acquit. Since 1973, 170 former death row inmates have been exonerated of all charges related to the wrongful conviction. By definition, an exoneration occurs when a person who has been convicted of a crime is officially cleared based on new evidence of innocence. So what I'm really saying is that 170 innocent people were released from death row. That's 170 innocent people nearly executed in the past 47 years. I would like to be able to quote you a solid statistic on how many executions have occurred in the U.S. since 1973, but sadly, I can barely keep up with the numbers. As of mid-July, that number was 1,522 people that have been executed, and I've had to change that number three times since I started compiling my notes. Chances are, by the time you hear this, that number will have increased. Anyway, that means for every nine people executed, another is exonerated. That's one out of 10 people on death row that are potentially innocent. Sorry to throw another stat at you, but you need to know this. As of January 1st, 2020, there were 2,620 people on death row. Doing the math for you, that's 262 potentially innocent people. And 10 of those 170 death row exonerations have occurred in Oklahoma alone. Now I'm about to tell you of the case of another potentially innocent young man on Oklahoma's death row, Julius Jones. My name is Julius Darius Jones. I'm 37 years old. I've been incarcerated for the last 18 years. Right now, there are 46 people alongside Julius in Oklahoma. Giving the state the benefit of the doubt, that's potentially four innocent people waiting for Oklahoma to execute them. And Julius very well might be one of those four. I promise, no more math. On with the case. On Wednesday, July 28, 1999, Paul Howell, his two children, and his sister arrived at his parents' home in Edmond, Oklahoma at approximately 9.30 p.m. They were immediately confronted in the driveway by a man who pointed a gun at Paul and demanded the keys to the vehicle. And then he shot him. That man then drove away in Howell's Chevy Suburban. Thankfully, his children and his sister ran to safety into the house calling for police. 
Paul's sister, described the shooter as a black male, about 5'6 to 5'8, wearing blue jeans, a white t-shirt, a skull cap, and a red bandana over his face. She distinctly remembered he had about an inch to an inch and a half of hair, quote, between the stocking cap and where the ear connected to his head. I would understand this to mean the hair was sticking out right behind his ear. That same night, Julius Jones, a college sophomore on summer break, was at his parents' house, about a 20-minute drive away from the crime scene. He had dinner with his family and then played Monopoly with his siblings. His older brother left for work at 9.30 p.m. and knows that Julius was still there with his sister. Julius had stayed at the house waiting for his friend, Christopher Jordan, to give him a ride to his own apartment near campus. But Chris didn't show up until 11 or 11.30 p.m., which annoyed Julius. When Julius asked him what took him so long, he replied he had gotten into it with someone. The next day, Julius got a page from an acquaintance, Liddell Day-Day King, who was looking for Chris Jordan. Instead, he asked Julius for a favor to help him move a truck. Unfortunately, Julius agreed. Even though he knew that vehicle was probably stolen, he wanted the cash that Liddell offered for his help. Julius drove Liddell's vehicle, but did not get into the other vehicle that Liddell was driving, which was a Chevy Suburban. So, neither his fingerprints nor his DNA were ever found in it or on it. Hard to believe that's possible if Julius is the one that stole it in the first place, right? Furthermore, he didn't even get out of Liddell's vehicle while at the chop shop that they drove to. The owner of that shop didn't want the vehicle since he had heard, quote, there was a body on it. Unquote. So they dropped the Suburban off at a local grocery store, abandoning it in the parking lot. Around midnight that night, Chris Jordan called Julius from a laundromat saying that he was locked out of his grandmother's house and to come get him. They went back to Julius's parents' house where Chris went upstairs to use the phone while Julius stayed downstairs. When Julius woke up the next day, Chris was gone. Police found Paul Howell Suburban at the grocery store two days after the crime occurred. They interviewed the owner of a nearby chop shop, Kermit Lottie, a police informant, who pointed them in the direction of known car thief, Liddell King, who was also a police informant. Liddell told them that Christopher Jordan and Julius Jones approached him and asked if he would be the middleman to sell the Suburban. He added that Julius was wearing a red bandana and a skull cap. It makes me wonder if this was a coincidence that Liddell had been with Julius the day before, or was that a purposeful setup? The grocery store surveillance camera showed Julius in the store where the Suburban was recovered after the crime. Of course, this was used as evidence to convict him. Christopher Jordan was picked up for questioning since police had evidence that he had been involved in a carjacking the previous week. They told him that if he cooperated and implicated Julius Jones, they would be lenient on him. Of course, he complied and said he drove Julius to the Howells with the intent to steal the car. However, his statements were all over the place. He said he never heard gunshots, then he said he did. He didn't see anything, but then he saw the body fall. He never touched the gun, but then, well, he may have left a fingerprint or two. Chris's attorneys told documentarians that he had to wait hours to speak to Chris. It's probable that police were crafting the statements to match the story they wanted told. 
Police then drove to the Joneses' house with Chris in the back seat. Chris directed them right to the murder weapon that was wrapped in a red bandana in a crawl space. I can only imagine that Chris's motivation for this was because he wore his hair in short braids that stuck out about an inch or two from the bottom of his hairline behind his ear, just like the eyewitness said. Julius, on the other hand, had short, short cropped hair. No way that you could see his hair from under a skull cap. And do you remember that Chris slept at the Joneses' house the night after the crime? Guess which room they found this evidence in. Hint, hint, it was the one that Chris slept in. I encourage you to watch the documentary, The Last Defense, about Julius's case. You have to see the damage done to Julius's parents' house by the police. Since Chris directed them right to the weapon, it makes you wonder why police needed to literally tear apart their house. Now let's get further into the issues with this case, starting with the original defense team. Julius Jones's trial defense attorneys were inexperienced and no match for the prosecution. They were unprepared and had zero death penalty case experience. At trial, the defense rested without giving any defense. They didn't call a single witness, including Julius, who wanted to tell the jury his version of events or any of his alibi witnesses. His attorney told documentarians that he did a terrible job at defending Julius and that he typically doesn't have those kinds of days in the courtroom. Think about that. He had a bad day? When a baseball pitcher has a bad day, he loses the game. When an airline pilot has a bad day, he may crash the plane. When an attorney has a bad day, his client ends up on death row. I've prepared for weeks for it. I typically don't have those uh, days in the courtroom. The courts, they don't care that, oh, my lawyer had a bad day. He just didn't do his damn job. He might've had a bad day, I'm having a bad life. As I mentioned, Julius had very short hair and there was a booking photo from a recent traffic arrest to prove it. His defense never showed the jury this photo so they could see Julius's hair wasn't long enough to stick out of a skull cap. Remember though, that his co-defendant matched the description that the eyewitness gave. Additionally, Liddell King also wore braids, but I can't say for sure how long they were at the time of the crime. Either way, the attorney should have at least presented these photos to the jury to allow for reasonable doubt. Also, no alibi witnesses were called to testify on behalf of Julius, since the lead defense attorney didn't believe they were reliable. I guess maybe because they were family? But if you think about it, most of the time, it's your family or friends that can vouch for your whereabouts. The police informants testified though, and together with the murder weapon, bandana, grocery store video, and the co-defendant testimony, the jury found Julius guilty and sentenced him to death. Now, let's talk about the incentivized witnesses the state used against Julius. An incentivized witness is someone who testifies on behalf of the prosecution against the defendant in exchange for a benefit of some type. This benefit could be anything from favorable treatment in the person's own criminal case to being moved to another prison closer to home or whatever the prosecutors feel like providing on that day. Chris Jordan was an admitted co-conspirator. 
he told police that he took part in this crime. The jury was told that Chris made a deal to avoid a death sentence and would be serving no less than a 30-year minimum sentence for his cooperation. Instead, he was released after just 15 years. He was released, not paroled, for a first-degree murder charge that he admitted to taking part in. Chris was definitely an incentivized witness. That matched the description of the shooter, I might add. Additionally, two inmates that were housed with Chris Jordan came forward stating that he bragged that he did the shooting and managed to pin it on Julius. Neither of those inmates were offered anything for this information, but yet they were dismissed as irrelevant and unreliable. Are you seeing the irony there? These two jailhouse informants, who were promised nothing, were disregarded in favor of Chris, who received a lighter sentence for his testimony. Also, Liddell King was facing a 20-year sentence for check fraud, but that charge was dismissed after he testified against Julius. Incentivized. Kermit Lottie was facing a lengthy prison sentence for drug charges. A detective in Julius's case wrote a letter to the DA recommending a lenient sentence, which he received, if he testified against Julius. And get this, Kermit Lottie was also an informant for another wrongful conviction in Oklahoma. Incentivized. And there were certainly issues with the jury that decided Julius's fate. Before charges were even formally filed against Julius, the DA in this case, Bob Macy, conducted a press conference telling everyone that he would seek the death penalty against Julius, thus tainting the jury pool. Now, of course, we think a prosecutor would never push for a death sentence if they didn't know the person was guilty, right? Can you see me rolling my eyes from there? But seriously, the public really does have that perception. And in the wake of Macy's public remarks, the media also began to call for the death penalty for Julius. Julius's defense had argued for a change of venue due to all the media coverage, and with it included 52 affidavits from county residents showing that the community attitude had been prejudiced against Julius, thus depriving him of a fair trial. The motion for change of venue was denied. During trial, one juror was heard by another saying, quote, they should put him in a box in the ground for what he has done. He said this statement in front of numerous other jurors. The defense argued that it was apparent this juror had already made up his mind and was far from impartial. However, the judge refused to remove him from the jury. He stated that juror could have been referring to Osama bin Laden for all we know, and the defense was reading too much into that statement. That would be almost comical if it weren't so tragic. But wait, it gets worse. Another claim that was brought to the judge during trial was that this jury was racially biased. A different juror was heard saying that the proceedings were a waste of time and, quote, they should just take that N-word out and shoot him behind the jail, unquote. This was a sitting juror that said that statement. The motion to dismiss this juror was also denied but he shouldn't have even been on this jury to begin with. It was clear that racial prejudice played a role in at least one juror's decision-making. Just imagine having your fate placed in that person's hands. Another sitting juror 
lied during voir dire. Voir dire is the process where both sides question potential jurors to decide if they're impartial. Each juror was questioned about their criminal record, and this particular juror lied about his numerous felony convictions. Why would someone lie to get on a jury? Furthermore, the prosecution was ordered to give the defense a list of prospective jurors along with their criminal records. Obviously, they didn't do so, or at least not for all jurors. This juror committed perjury, and the state did not comply with the court's order to give the defense this information. It seems to me that someone really wanted this person on this jury. Whatever the reason, I think it calls into question Julius's guilty verdict. Ironically, the word voir dire is French for to speak the truth. Three jurors from Julius's trial submitted affidavits stating that they felt the defense did an inadequate job and admitted that alibi witnesses and testimony from the people that Chris Jordan bragged to may have made a difference to them. At least two of those jurors said that some of the others appeared to have already had their mind made up before the trial was over. Those jury members that convicted Julius were 11 white jurors and one black juror. Other black potential jurors were struck from serving for reasons that white potentials were not. This is absolutely not allowed. For example, one black potential juror was struck by the state for being convicted for the misdemeanor drinking charge of actual physical control. Actual physical control is when someone is intoxicated and in possession of their vehicle, but not actually driving it. Like maybe they were sleeping in a vehicle with the keys in the ignition. However, the juror that lied during voir dire, who was white by the way, had a felony DUI on his record. This could be considered a Batson violation However, the appeals court dismissed that claim. Batson v. Kentucky was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that says the dismissal of jurors without stating a valid cause for doing so may not be used to exclude jurors based solely on their race. In this instance, though, it appears the prosecution did just that. The Supreme Court denied Julius's petition for judicial review regarding the racial bias claim. Julius's constitutional rights were certainly violated, and he should, at the very minimum, get a new and fair trial. I'm sad to say, though, that Julius is out of appeals. The issues raised for each appeal have been absolutely valid, but he is, unfairly in my opinion, denied each time. Now let's examine the physical evidence, or lack thereof. The red bandana that was found in Julius's parents' house was never tested for DNA until just recently. Once it was tested, the results came back as having a mixture of three or more individuals, all partial matches. One of those partials matched Julius, but none of the DNA was from saliva. Now, think of yourself wearing your cloth face mask into a store for about five minutes. You speak to the clerk briefly, and then you get back in your car and immediately take off your mask. That mask would have some sort of sweat and saliva on it. This is the reason it's recommended that you wash your mask after each use. So, in the case of the red bandana, there is no way the shooter wore this bandana. He was yelling at the victim on a hot night in Oklahoma. When you yell into cloth, you will leave some of your saliva. And it was 87 degrees with a dew point of 68 the night of the crime. 
that translates to hot and humid. So in addition to saliva, there would surely be sweat on that bandana, which is perfect for DNA. So either that particular bandana wasn't used in this crime, or Christopher Jordan washed it before planning it and the murder weapon at Julius's parents' house. Remember that Chris was at the laundromat the night that he slept at Julius's parents' house. The prosecution, however, interprets the DNA results as conclusive evidence that they have the right person in custody. But there was no saliva on the bandana. That's not possible if it was worn by the shooter. Furthermore, you can imagine that it's quite easy to transfer any sort of touch DNA evidence from someone's bedroom onto a piece of cloth. Investigators also removed a white t-shirt that they claimed Julius wore the night of the murder. There was not a speck of blood on this t-shirt, but the prosecution still mentions it as evidence. Julius's fingerprints and DNA were never found in the stolen Suburban, and further, don't forget that his hair didn't match the description that the eyewitness gave. Let's talk about that district attorney, Cowboy Bob Macy. Bob Macy was considered one of the top five deadliest prosecutors in the nation. He sent 54 people to death row during his 21-year tenure, and half of those convictions have since been reversed. In addition to prosecutorial misconduct, other reasons cited were false informant testimony and forensic scientists lying about evidence. Bob Macy cheated to win his cases. This alone should be reason enough to allow for a new trial. If they're so confident that Julius did the crime, let them prove it in accordance to the Constitution and Moral Code of Ethics. I feel that all of Macy's cases should be reinvestigated by an impartial third party. And to this day, Julius and his team have never had access to the prosecutor's case file. What are they hiding in that file? Many states have rules requiring the sharing of the case files, and others just willingly share, but not in this case. Something else that I find extremely suspicious is that one of the prosecuting attorneys during Julius's trial was a person named Sandra Elliott. Mrs. Elliott was married to Judge Ray Elliott, who presided over and rejected Julius's motion to suppress evidence that was illegally seized from his parents' house. I'm sure I don't need to spell out that conflict of interest for you, right? Furthermore, Judge Elliott has been known to make racially derogatory comments towards Hispanics. However, this wasn't brought to light until many years after Julius's trial, but it's still alarming. He said things like, Mexicans deserve to be taken south of the border with a shotgun to their heads, and that he would volunteer to do just that. This judge was responsible for a motion to suppress evidence in a case where racial issues were evident, and his wife was one of the prosecuting attorneys. You may remember from our last We the Jury episode that I mentioned the documentary, The Last Defense. The series focused some episodes on Darlie Routier and the other episodes on Julius's case. Since it aired, Julius has gotten a lot of support from some famous people. Viola Davis was an executive producer for The Last Defense. Kim Kardashian is fighting for Julius. Several NBA players are publicly advocating for him, including Blake Griffin, Trey Young, Russell Westbrook, as well as football player Baker Mayfield. 
Scott Budnick, an executive producer for the movie Just Mercy, is also publicly supporting Julius. Here's the thing. If it weren't for The Last Defense, or Kim Kardashian, or Russell Westbrook, you may never have heard of this kid sitting on death row. Yes, his defense team would still be working diligently on his case, but it takes publicity to get your case out there and raise money and awareness. Imagine how many other potentially innocent people are in the same predicament with no publicity. As I mentioned before, Julius has exhausted all of his appeal options. Recently, he submitted his petition for clemency into the Pardon and Parole Board. He is asking that board to consider commuting his sentence to time served. Julius and his team are asking the public to also contact them to advocate for him. You can find that information on the Justice for Julius Facebook page. There, you can also find a link to sign a petition addressed to the Governor of Oklahoma as well as the Pardon and Parole Board. There is entirely too much reasonable doubt in this case to allow Julius to be put to death. This man deserves a fair trial. Paul Howell and his family deserve justice for his murder. It is so easy to put the wrong man behind bars. Misconduct, corruption, false or mistaken testimony, even human error. But it is so difficult to right that wrong. We cannot unexecute someone. Death is final. The state of Oklahoma needs to revisit this case before it's too late. As a final note, I want you to listen to Julius's own words. Recording artist JB just released a song called Until You're Free, specifically to highlight Julius's case. I encourage you to purchase this song since all funds go to Justice for Julius. A link can be found on the Justice for Julius Facebook page, or you can find the video on YouTube. Search JB, that's J-A-B-E-E, -E, and Julius Jones. The first part of the song is Julius's own voice reciting a poem he wrote. It makes me choke up every time that I listen. In it, he says, Now imagine your arms and legs strapped to a chair, a noose unjudiciously choking off your air. Please, dear father, are you out there? So you know that Julius thinks about what could happen to him if the state doesn't write this wrong. Now, I want you to think about it too, because what if he really is innocent?